Right now on Fast, from squid games to big gains, shares of Netflix are on a tear this year, even as two historic strikes grind Hollywood to a halt. So why is this media giant able to buck this trend, and can the strength continue past earnings? Plus, once the bluest of the blue chips, AT&T is now trading at levels not seen since the early days of the Clinton administration. Can anything reach out and save this one? And later, harvesting gains in grains, Ford's latest flop, and even luxury seems to be losing its luster. The trades behind all these stock moves coming up. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Karen Feinerman, Steve Grasso, Guy Adami, and Chris Verone, head of technical analysis at Strategus, a Baird company. And we start off with Netflix streaming past the competition in a big way. The media giant rising more than 3% at its highs and closing the day up nearly 2%. That as we await the company's second quarter earnings report on Wednesday. The move in Netflix is start contrast compared to other titans in the media space. Paramount, Disney, Warner Brothers, Discovery, all falling today. Disney's losses wiping out all its gains, in fact, for 2023. The traditional studios reeling under the pressure of a second strike in Hollywood. Actors joining writers on the picket line, demanding higher pay and protections against AI. This is a live look at the strikers right now in Los Angeles. So, does Netflix's vast library of content, its reliance on unscripted shows and an international pipeline, insulate it from the pressures it is plague, that plagues its rivals, Guy. Certainly feels that way, and they're getting the valuation on top of it. But the valuation, I think, is justified. Listen, at its trough, when it was trading 185, 190 or so, the valuation was less than a market multiple. We all talked about how cheap it was. Now at 30 times, it's getting more in line with where it's traded historically. But you probably still have, I don't know, 25% EPS growth on a stock that continues to grind higher in earnings. I'm interested what Chris has to say, but... This current level, this 450 level-ish that we're trading at, pretty much a 50% retracement of the all-time high we saw in the fall of 21 and that trough level that I just talked about. So this is a logical place for it to pause, but I still think it grinds higher from here. Well, I mean, there's no question that the trend of the stock is up. But remember, it was a year ago, I think last April, where you broke down from this 500, 450 zone. There's a massive gap uh, on this chart here. We're up about 180% off the lows or right into that 50% retracement you talk about. You've only been this overbought on the weekly RSI a handful of times in the stock's life. I think if you're going to look for a logical place to take chips off or pause or consolidate, this is it. We're going into earnings 30% above the 200-day moving average here as well. I think that's risky into a tricky seasonal period where you start to lose the support of the calendar here. You know, I thought of something very ironic. Who's writing the picket signs for the writers that are on strike? Mm. Huh? <laughs> huh? So clever. Right? So, <laughs> so I, I, agree with, I agree with Chris. I, I think this is a great spot where I think it's a little bit overdone here. You, you've had enough of this uh, built in where password sharing or not share. Mm-hmm. You've had a run up. You've had the king of content. It used to be Disney was the king of content. Now Netflix is the king of content. For me, I, I, I think this is hugely overextended. I would take it off the table. The thing, I mean, the question, too, is, you know, how long do you continue to give Netflix this sort of premium above the others? Or is this sort of a, you know, we see the strike, Netflix is going to be the winner, and so you afford Netflix that premium, and that ends there? Or is there a continual sort of, the more time goes on, the more likely yeah. that somebody might churn off of another subscription right. and turn on to Netflix. And Netflix yeah. isn't an actual beneficiary yes. to that degree. I think all of that is true. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, ad supported and uh, password uh, sharing 
are not over, I think, yeah. right? I think there's still room to go there. And I still, I think, as you said, the strike benefits them. Also, going into the strike, they had a gigantic lead, gigantic lead of subscribers. But more importantly, they had a balance sheet that can withstand and can grow. And I mean, so they're in a very different position. All that having been said, I, I can't buy it here. I'm long. <laughs> I'm really stuck. Uh, I would consider selling upside calls. I've done that once before and had to buy them back higher. So I just, uh, it's hard for me to get around the multiple. You believe in more. the story. I do believe in the story, but, but it doesn't mean. you don't believe in the multiple. I don't, I don't believe, that's happened in other stocks, Apple as well, the multiple. I mean, it's a yeah, premium company. but if you can't company. buy it here, it deserves, it shouldn't you not be long it? You, you've yes, explained that I know, to me. and I know, and I, you know, it's hypocritical of me, but I do think they will win. But one other thing that I think could happen, consolidation in the industry, I do think they'll be a beneficiary of that. I mean, this really underscores the divide uh, between Netflix and the others in terms of the pressures. I mean, we were just talking about Disney the other day, the immense pressure that it feels uh, on, across all of its business, but particularly DTC when they're trying to cut costs. This is not the time. I mean, there's these groups are striking at kind of the wrong time. I mean, if they wanted to strike, they should have struck, you know, had a strike during the pandemic or, or when things were good for, for Disney. Right. And in terms of the in terms of the timeline for the company, it's mm -hmm. the worst possible right. time as well. So this is but, something that Tom, Tom Rogers talked about it last week. They're two years away from probably Disney figuring out some of the errors of their ways. This is a stock, by the way, we're close to 85 and a half. I mean, we're within like a dollar now of a seven, eight year low yeah. in this stock, which is pretty unbelievable if you think about it. So the value trap that Disney's been has been exactly that. I don't think it's troughed yet either, quite frankly. I mean, this is pandemic lows, yes. right? Yes. I mean, it's trading at yeah. pandemic lows, which is crazy. When the parks were closed. Right. When everything was closed, the world stopped. They didn't have any streaming. Right. But they, right? they started to have streaming. They did they started, start to. Right. And, and money was free. Money was free. And they were That's growing. How much and, money and do they, they make on a park, though, Karen? It's a huge amount of money. And this has been totally discounted where it's trading, to your point, at the pandemic bottom or thereabouts. Yeah, I can't explain and, that. And everything is just thrown off the side as if this stock is, is worth nothing anymore. It's beyond me, but it still does not rally. The chart's terrible, as we yeah. know. This $80 level has been the line in the sand for nearly a decade here. But if you look at relative terms, Disney relative to S&P, you're making about 15 or 20 year price lows mm -hmm. there. So I think the question is, you know, we all kind of agree that, hey, maybe Netflix is frothy here, but what do you switch into? Uh, the, the viable alternatives are not very alternative. Is there, though, a buy the rumor, sell the news? I mean, yeah. he did telegraph this quarter and probably subsequent quarters are going in that Iger interview. Right. He did telegraph that. So I don't know if everybody knows that now already. Can they can they just report a terrible, horrific quarter? Do you quarter? need to make some sort yeah. of bottom off of that, though, or, or new low or move lower off of that, right? When you well, look at the they, damage in the chart, this is a bottoming process that will take months and months and months and months, not days. And we know the bad news, yet the stock continues to still move lower. I want to see days where the stock is resilient on bad news. That has just not been the case uh, here yet. You saw it briefly the day, I think it was David Faber's yeah. interview. We talked about it on the show. I think the stock closed up a little north of 90 bucks, 90 and a half. Mm. It's given it all back and then some. The stock doesn't trade well. It's telling you that there's a problem there. So I think they report on the 9th of August, if I'm not mistaken. I don't see a meaningful rally in this name until you get through earnings, which is obviously a few weeks away now. Short term, though, I mean, to Chris's point, I mean, if you're going to cycle out of some of the ones that are more wounded and could be even more wounded 
in a strike scenario, then should Netflix be at least the short term winner, at least for the short term right now? Yeah, I mean, Netflix is, to Chris's point, there's nothing to cycle into. Everything else has gotten decimated and continues to not get a bid. So I, I think that the, the answer is maybe you don't cycle into a competitor. You cycle into a different stock. It, it depends on if you're running a fund or trading your own money. So if you're running a fund, then you're going to have to cycle into something that's either cash or competitor. If you're running your own money, you just get out of Netflix and wait. For more on what the SAG after strike could mean for Netflix and other media companies, we're going to check in with Julia Borston. We won't go to her quite yet. Mm. Um, she's in front Is of that Paramount. code for there's a little hiccup. They're standing in front of yes. a picket line. There could be things that happen, you know, but I, I think Steve brings up a good point. I mean, you said not this one. So if you if your mandate were, were you have to be in the media, media space, some kind of media company, what would that oh be? Oh, my God. Well, I used to own Paramount. That was terrible. And I don't know if what happened with National Amusement in technical default. I don't know if that makes the Paramount sales story more ripe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm not sure who'd want to buy them. I don't know. Maybe I'd go with Comcast. It's not great, but pitch the parent for a little bit. Right. All right. Well, uh, let's check in with Julia Borson. She is out in Los Angeles. And as, as I understand it, with an actor, Julia, oh, take it away. On. That's right. I'm here outside Paramount's lot. I'm joined by Danny, Danny Trejo, in addition to being an actor, has um, a line of taco stores and restaurants here in Los hey, Angeles. And music. And, so, and-, and many things. And so you came here um, to support the actors. Tell us what your perspective is on this strike. Well, all we're asking is for everybody to be fair. That's it. Just fair. And, uh, you know, everything's gone up but our wages. And so it's like... Uh, you know, we're all not Tom Cruise, you know, so it's like we got to support our money. I mean, we got to support. Hey, Newsom, yeah, call me. So you're leaving a message for the governor there. What's your message to him? To call me. Uh, how concerned are you about artificial intelligence impacting the future as well as streaming <laughs> as streaming revenues? Let me tell you something. I'm, I'm worried about regular intelligence. You know, now it's like they're going to like, that means they can use our image or our, for whatever. You know what I mean? And it's like, so now residuals have basically slowing down. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Give us a piece of that pie too, you know? So right now it's like all the producers, they're making some dough, you know? And the only thing that's working is nobody's working. So... Nobody's working right now. You gotta understand, this affects a lot of people. This affects every restaurant around here. You know, this affects every gardener around here. You know, and uh, in fact, my gardener's at my house right now, waiting for some money. And are you concerned about AI either replicating actors or taking more actors' jobs? Well, you know what? Anything that takes away is not good. You know, I mean. Uh, uh, when everybody's excited that, hey, we got a robot that can do this, good. You just took Juan Sanchez out of a job, you know? So it's like, for me, it's like, we've got to remember that you know, we're all on this, it's like we're all on the Titanic looking for a good seat. You know, we got to take care of each other all over the world. And so. And ha- how long do you think this strike could last? I hope not too long. Uh, aren't income taxes coming up pretty soon? I know I owe a lot. Tell them, hey, uh, President uh, Biden, you're going to have to wait for your money. Well, I understand you're here to bring water and tacos to some of the striking actors. We appreciate you talking to us today. Danny Trejo, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. (laughs) Melissa? 
Thank you very much, Julia, for one of the most colorful interviews ever to grace CNBC Airwaves. <laughs> Julia Borston, you never know what you'll find in front of Paramount Studios, I guess. Um, I had to myself Google Danny Trejo. I don't oh, know. Oh, stop it. Come on. But amazing. He's one yeah. of the most prolific of American actors, according to IMDb. In 2002 alone, he did nine films. Nine films. Wow. That's I wouldn't have thought he would be that efficient. <laughs> I don't know, I'm just, I'm just saying. I don't. He's 79 I mean, he did old. juggle a couple of things he on did. that He interview. was calling the governor. And, it, was, yeah. it was interesting, though, how he said we have to help each other out around yeah. the world. Because that's where Netflix has the edge, the international aspect of it. Production can go on in South Korea or in Europe. There is no, there are no writer strikes, an actor strike plaguing production. Overseas. And I think there was a CNBC.com article talking about exactly that, how they're sort of incubate they're protected from what's going on here vis-a-vis exactly that by the way danny trejo was in the movie heat which i know oh. you're a huge mm-hmm. fan of i mean pacino de niro ashley judd you val kilmer tom sizemore oh my goodness gracious and you didn't know that it upsets me to no end but i'll say 80 percent of the people the part of these unions i mean think about it they're living paycheck to paycheck so it's nice, in my opinion, it's nice to see at least they're trying to get their just due, having been left on the wayside for the last 15 or 20 years. Coming up. Pickup price cut. Ford's F-150 Lightning truck getting a whole lot cheaper. The new sticker price and how a looming worker strike could impact the auto industry next. Plus, we are mowing into the agricultural trade. A move out of Russia having a big impact on grain prices. Can this group be the breadwinner of your portfolio? We'll debate that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Ford dropping almost 6% as the automaker slashes prices on its electric F-150 Lightning truck by as much as $10,000. And a looming worker strike might just add to the troubles in the industry. Phil Lebeau joins us now with the latest. Phil. Melissa, this was not just a little price cut on the F-150 Lightning. This was a substantial announcement from Ford. The price cuts, depending on the model and the entry price level for that particular model, down 7 to 16%. That's the amount being cut off the MSRP. The base price, by the way, falling almost $10,000, under $50,000. Yes, the base F-150 Lightning was at one point $59,000. Now it's down to $49,000. And if you are Ford and you're looking at these these cuts that have happened here, the shares obviously over the last couple of days have been just hit dramatically. Keep in mind that Ford is the number five U.S. EV seller right now. They are not in the top three. They are number five in terms of the number of EVs that they sold, despite the the investments that they've made into the electric vehicle platform at Ford. The key here to keep in mind as you look at the UAW talks is that while a lot of this is the established internal combustion engine vehicle business and what's happening there, for Ford, GM, and Stellantis, they want to close the pay gap between not only themselves and the foreign automakers, their U.S. plants, but look at Tesla. The estimate is that Tesla's all-in hourly wages for their line workers dollars, $63 to $67 for the big three. So you see the difference there. Three things are going to be key in the UAW contract talks. And remember, that contract ends in mid-September. Job guarantees, because it takes fewer workers to build an electric vehicle. Cost of living adjustments, they're not in the current contract. They would like those added into the contract. 
Easy to see why, given what we saw with inflation in the last year. And then finally, what the uh, auto workers would like to see is uh, an end to this wage tier level that was put in effect as the companies came out of the uh, government-mandated bankruptcies, at least Stellantis, uh, then Fiat Chrysler, and General Motors had that, and then basically Ford came in and matched it as well. They would like to see an end to that. One last note, Bank of America estimated if there is a strike, a one-week strike, and we don't know if it's going to be a short strike, if there is any strike at all, or it could be a long one, but if it was a one-week strike, Bank of America estimates the cost to the automakers, to each automaker, would be between somewhere between $470 million and $770 million, depending on the automaker. That gives you some indication of what's at stake here when this contract comes up mid-September. Melissa? Phil, no, not, no pun intended, changing gears. Tesla this week, the stock, we all know what it's done. Wells Fargo had a note. Yeah. They raised their price target. But remember in the fall, Tesla sort of caution people, our margins are going to start coming down. I think margins at the time yep. were 23%. We're not going to get down to legacy automakers levels, which I think are 16%, but we'll probably come in somewhere between sort of 17 and 21. The Wells Fargo notes suggest that 17.5% is sort of in the running here. Is that a warning sign or is that just, you know, with all the price cuts we're seeing, the natural course of things? The natural course of things, and that's the expectation that this is the trough that you're going to see in gross auto margins, excluding zero emission vehicle credits for Tesla, about 17.5%. I talked with a couple of analysts today who said, look, if this has a 15 or a 16 handle on it, it's going to put some pressure on people and have them questioning whether or not it is the trough in terms of gross margins for Tesla. But the, the expectation is this is the trough, and then they start to ramp back up again, especially as they boost their scale in the second half of this year. And increasingly, people are saying, we think that they'll deliver maybe 1.9 million vehicles or 2 million vehicles if everything goes well. Remember, their guidance at this point is 1.8 million vehicles. Phil, though, walk us through and uh, back to Ford. Sorry to switch gears again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, That's but fine. getting back to Ford, I mean, if, if their wage costs are going up and, you know, some of their input costs have probably come down year on year, but can you walk us through how this factors into margins as a whole? I mean, they seem to indicate that there's more room for even further price cuts if needed. Yes, they, they believe that there are, and they believe that the increase in production the supply chain improving and their supply costs going down all allow them to put these price cuts in place and the volume will make up for what they may lose in terms of margin. I'm not sure everybody agrees with that. I think, look, at the end of the day, whether or not what the impact is on margins, they're they're still a long ways from the EV business being profitable. But separate from what happens with margins, Melissa, when you cut prices 7 to 16%, you were clearly trying to stoke demand. And I reached out to some dealers today, some Ford dealers, who have said, yeah, we need demand. It's not a supply issue because there are lightnings that are available for people to buy. But they need greater demand. And if you think back to a year ago, Melissa, they had so much momentum behind the mm-hmm. F-150 Lightning. kind of feels like it's been squandered away. It really does. I mean, you do not see them in large numbers out on the road. You see them, and I see them more here in the Midwest than I do uh, elsewhere, but you don't see them in huge numbers. And I think that's what, I think Ford needs to have the huge numbers and the production and the sales increase. They definitely need that. Phil, thanks. Always good to see you. Phil LeBeau.
You bet. Um, and this, of course, as Tesla announces it produces for Cybertruck, rolled off the production line over the weekend, Karen. Uh, it really mm-hmm. does seem to underscore the lack of demand that for, I mean, when Tesla came out with its price cuts, there was such, you know, oh, they're doing this because nobody wants the, wants the cars. They have to cut the price. Mm-hmm. But now Ford is taking a page out of the Tesla playbook. Let's cut demand, cut price cut and see price. if the demand can Yeah, can I also, I can't help but wondering, though, if it is somewhat some cosmetic something or other in, in front of the negotiation, right? So, okay, these things were selling like hotcakes. Maybe they aren't now. So you have to take a pay cut or we can't give you as much of a pay increase. I don't know. I just, I I wonder. It's odd. It made me think, why? why? The timing. Yes. So, but clearly it's not good for GM either, right? I mean, anybody's going to be offering any product in that space. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised. I think Phil touched on it. The simplest answer in this business is often the right one. You don't cut prices when mm-hmm. demand is robust. Demand is clearly not robust. I think the chart reflects that. We're down 8% over the last three days on Ford. Even in the most benign of corrections, you still have another 8% to go before the 200-day moving average. I think it's a very reasonable target here. Stellantis is a better chart. Toyota is a better chart. Honda is a better chart. Would you have said the same thing about Tesla when it cuts it, cut its prices, though? Uh, yeah, I probably would have, and the market would have quickly said that was the incorrect interpretation. Uh-huh. Um, but very different pictures and very different um, uh, phases of of their lives here. Um, I think when you look at the message from Ford, it suggests that demand is not there. Yeah. I, I traded Tesla. I'm out of the name. That was a profitable trade. I traded Rivian. That was a great trade. Nosebleed territory. I'm out of the name currently. When we look at Ford and we talk about margins, Ford wants to run to an 8% margin on their EVs. They're going to lose $3 billion on their EVs this year. Long way to go. They're a long way from Kansas, so to speak, right? That's 2026. That's if they can chop wood and get to that goal. If you're going to buy the EVs, you buy the EV direct players. You don't buy the Fords or the GMs yet. Do you buy anything in the auto space, Guy? Wow. I, you know, the, the short answer is Ford for a trade, it could be interesting, but to... to to Steve's, to Steve's, to Chris's point, it's got some room on the downside. In March of 1997, Ford was a $14.10 stock. Today is July of 23. It's, now, obviously, it's gone up and down, but it's dead money. You've got to trade around levels, and this is probably not a level to get along at yet. I think you buy the parts. Look at Borg Warner. I mean, these are names that could benefit in a strike here as well. Borg Warner is a very good chart. Looks like one of those big industrials with the big bases. But this raises a really interesting dichotomy that you're seeing prices fall at the same time labor has the upper hand on wages. And we know wages are sticky because they're set by contract. And we know prices are more volatile. I don't think that's particularly great for margins and perhaps what the stock suggests here as well. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Agricultural action. Farming stocks harvesting gains as grain prices soar. So will this trade be a cash crop? The details next. Plus, banks' earnings underway. And while the news has been good, the stock moves tell a different story. Will tomorrow's reports turn things around? What to expect out of those reports ahead? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Wheat prices spiking early in the day after Russia terminated a U.N.-backed Black Sea Grain agreement, putting global supply at risk. The grain did end the day lower. Turkey's president tried to assuage some fears, saying he believes Russia's Vladimir Putin has plans to restart the deal. Ag stocks jumping on the news today. Adeco Agro, Bungie and Archer Daniels all moving higher. Steve, you stepped in. Yeah, Archer Daniels. And this was supposed to be hypothetically a day trade for me where I, I figured I'd, I'd catch the bounce off of the headline. I'm, I'm going to stay a little bit longer, but it's not going to be a long-term investment because these headline-driven moves are usually just that, where they will subside. Somehow there'll be workarounds. Somehow the wheat production will, will still flow somewhere else or people will adapt. Uh, so I'm in it right now, but I don't intend on being in it for the long haul. You know, Steve, I, I think what's notable, this move has been percolating for a few weeks. Today was the fourth two standard deviation move for wheat in the past three weeks. So when we start getting these outsized daily moves, it raises the likelihood of something larger brewing. Uh, I like the Bungie chart uh, here a lot. Finally back above the 200-day for the first time in months and months and months. A lot of these were in these eight, nine-month downtrends that they now broke. Um, whether it's ADM, I know you're there, or Bungie, I think they point higher here. Are these sustained moves, moves higher or are they sort of just spikes? And I'm just wondering because we saw it translate into higher food prices at one point, right? So does that happen again? You know, when I look at a name like ADM or Bungie, the longer term trends are still pretty good here. I think these consolidations or corrections over the last year were actually fairly orderly in context of the longer term pictures. So I like them here longer um, than just a short term trade. I think they're good pictures. BG, Bungie through 104, which was a high back in November of last year. Then it's off to the races. Then you could be talking about levels we last saw probably in late 2022, which, if memory serves, was 130 or so. Valuation's always been compelling. That's not the reason. But the story now, the fundamentals behind some of these names are pretty compelling. Coming up, more bank earnings on deck from Bank of America to Goldman Sachs. What can we expect the big names to say about the state of their own finances? RBC's Gerard Cassidy will join us next to lay out his top picks and which ones he says are in trouble. Don't go anywhere. More Fast Money back in two. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks quietly kicking off the week by notching a new set of highs for the year. The Dow climbing two-tenths of a percent for its highest close since November. The S&P and Nasdaq both at their highest since April of last year. Apple closing at a record, ending the day just shy of 194 share. It's the first time the stock's done that this month. NVIDIA and Booking Holdings also closing at all-time highs. Meantime, a slew of banks getting ready to report earnings tomorrow. Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America all on tap before the bell. B of A stock lagging its peers off more than 11% so far this year. Analyst Gerard Cassidy expects encouraging results ahead. He is the head of U.S. Bank Equity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Gerard, also always great to see you. Um, Bank of America is one of your top picks here, and so I got to start off with that, Gerard. What are you What are you seeing in this earnings release, and what makes you pick the laggard of your group as one of your top picks? Thank you, Melissa, for having me on the program. And the reason we like uh, Bank America is that it has a very strong core funding base. And this core funding base is going to be very beneficial to them as the Federal Reserve keeps short-term interest rates elevated, probably for an extended period of time. And if we are going to see a Fed funds rate you know, stay above 5% for 2024, banks like Bank America will benefit from that because of this strong, cheap core deposit funding base. 
Gerard, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. I have some Bank of America. I actually have a bigger bet in J.P. Morgan. I just felt like they did a much better job uh, managing their book, their holds maturity. And then obviously they were the place to go to for deposits. And Bank of America has been sort of disappointing. The P.E. is really low. And, uh, you know, they had a little bit of a held to maturity issue. But do you think they can get what, what do they need to do to get to a multiple that's at least double digits? Hi, Karen. You're right. They have certainly had an issue with their health and maturity portfolio, particularly in their bond portfolio. And what I would suggest is that if the Federal Reserve is going to hit its terminal rate for Fed funds, possibly in the next two or three months, what we're likely to see for all the banks is that the deposit rates for the industry tend to peak three to six months following that terminal rate. And if that proves to be the case, and the long end of the curve stays between, let's call it 3.8 and four and a quarter percent, that's very positive for Bank America. And the held to maturity you know, bond portfolio is going to, over time, pay down, and that will benefit them as well. But that's been the big, I would say, holdback on their performance this year, is that underwater bond portfolio. In terms of stock performance, the flip side of J.P. Morgan is State Street, which was an unmitigated disaster last week. We talked about it. It's probably down close to 20 percent ish since they reported. Is that State Street specific or does it, you know, does it portend something a little more dire for the space? Guy, it's a good question because you're right. Their numbers uh, when they came out on Friday really gave the stock a shellacking. And it all, I think, had to do with the fact that they got it down quite severely on their net interest income. As, as you know, State Street's a custody bank, and their customers are not grandma and grandpa type of depositors, but financial institutions. And as a result, they have to pass on almost the entire Fed funds rate increase to those deposit customers, and therefore they are now guiding down on net interest revenue. However, when you think the Fed is going to start cutting the Fed funds rate, which is not near term, I understand that. But when you think that could happen, State Street and Bank of New York will be the two banks to own going into Fed fund rate cuts because they will cut their uh, funding costs more quickly than companies that have those core deposits like Bank America. Uh, Gerard, we are going to get a lot more of the regionals, a look at the regionals next week. And I'm wondering, you know, because you say that the coast is clear, that there aren't any more bank failures to come. Will you, what will you be listening for in some of the, the regional conference calls to, to give you some more evidence of that? Melissa, you said it well, because, you know, those failures we saw in March and then, of course, the failure of First Republic in May were very idiosyncratic. What their deposit mix was was totally different than the typical bank. And so we don't see any types of deposit problems like that for the rest of the large banking industry. But what we are expecting, as rates have risen here, banks are going to be using CDs or term funding for more of their deposits. They need to do this to keep their depositors happy, as well as, as the deposits leave the non-interest bearing accounts, they need to go into alternatives. So that's what's going to put pressure on the margin. This quarter is going to be very difficult for the regional banks on the net interest margin. But once again, sh should the Fed reach this terminal rate in Fed funds and deposit rates cease to go up by the end of the year, the regional banks will be in good, uh, good stead going into the first quarter of 2024. Gerard, we're going to leave it there. Always good to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa.
Gerard Cassidy, RBC. I think Jamie Dimon said this on the J.P. Morgan call, that there's no pricing power in this industry. And so when rates are higher, you have to give a, yeah. a higher rate to your customer. And that's exactly what Gerard is talking about. Uh, smaller banks, it's harder for them to compete right. with these interest-bearing accounts. It is, plus, you know, you have the overhead. And if you're a smaller bank, right. you still have a lot of overhead. It's hard to be efficient. It's, it, it's J.P. Morgan and it's every other bank on a performance basis. J, if you don't own J.P. Morgan, you're wasting your time. They're waiting for a bounce. Regionals still have not bounced as much as you thought they would. So everyone's waiting for that regional bounce. It really doesn't seem to be coming. So all we forced is people are merging or, or putting their money into those big money setter banks. J.P. Morgan's won the lion's share. And it's too easy with another hiccup crisis to just switch your funds out from your phone into a J.P. Morgan. So why not do your stock investing and leave it with J.P. Morgan? You have everything under the sun. And Stephen, the reality here is that the yield curve is still negative 95 inverted. Mm-hmm. And it's just not historically a great environment to be long banks. What I can't reconcile is when you read the headlines of how good some of these bank earnings were on Friday, the price action from the stocks was atrocious. I mean, City reversed six. BAC reverse three, JPM, which was the best one, reverse two and a half. I think these next couple days are going to be really telling. What we do not want to see is good numbers with bad price action. That was the lesson Friday. We'll get Bank of America tomorrow, Morgan Stanley tomorrow. Both names still below the 200-day moving average. They've not bounced. I think it's a vulnerable setup uh, into earnings. It's interesting. It's Friday, the reversals we talked about. You weren't here. Sarah did. But we talked about the reversals in the banks. They got a lot back today. But Chris's point is well taken. I mean, they're at pretty important levels right here. And again, one has to wonder if this lag effect ever takes hold of the economy. Banks are going to suffer. I mean, that's just the way it is. So we'll see. Valuations will matter at a certain point. All right. Tune in to CNBC tomorrow to hear from top bank execs, Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman and Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan will join us exclusively after their reports. That's right here on CNBC. Coming up, talk about a dropped call. Shares of AT&T hitting a 30-year low as analysts hang up on this name. So is this a cellular sell? We will find out how options traders are dialing in. Fast Money's back in two. At this point, there's there's really no way to quantify this risk. The, the challenge is there's not a lot of good reasons for people to want to own these stocks anyway. And if you throw this one more log on the fire, the danger is that people say, what do I need to be involved for? And that, I think, is, is why you're seeing this incremental selling um, over the, the past few days. Welcome back to Fast Money. That was Moffitt Nathanson, co-founder Craig Moffitt, shedding some light on AT&T's big move lower. The telecom giant hitting a new 52-week low today on a downgrade from Citi. The analyst highlighting the uncertainty stemming from the company's use of lead sheath cables, whether or not there's some liabilities associated with that. The stock hitting lows not seen since February of 1993. How bad is this stock chart, Chris? It's bad. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's interesting when you look at the life of the chart. It didn't make it has not made a high since 1999. We're 20-something years into this big distribution process. The bull market in 03 to 07 never made a new high. The bull market in 2009 through 2020 never made a new high. Now you're back to 30-year lows. What I think you got to now step aside and look at some of the peers and say, are there some peers at risk here? The name I'm frankly worried about is T-Mobile. It's a hedge fund hotel. Everyone owns it. Mm-hmm. It's rallied right back to resistance. It's in a downtrend. 
I think we've got to start thinking about selling some of the peers. T-Mobile would be high on my list. Well, it's interesting because I think the all-time high in T-Mobile is 152-ish or so. So it's had trouble at these levels. So Chris, Chris is definitely right in terms of that. They are the leader in the space. They're also getting rewarded for it in terms of valuation. AT&T, I mean, I'm wrong all the time, but we have been right collectively on this stock. There's, you know, people say own it for the dividend. You've lost that dividend 30 times spades over. In spades. It's so there's, right now, there's, by the way. there's no compelling reason, again, to own this stock. Yeah, T-Mobile was the disruptor in the space, and, and they, were, they, they were accredited with that in the stock price. Uh, John Ledger did an awesome job. He's not there anymore, obviously. They've continued to try to break ground on different, different things. I don't think T-Mobile's not going to be the same risk that we're having with AT&T and Verizon, but I agree, some of the froth has got to be taken out of the balloon there. E- even though it's, it has sold off pretty recently and is rallying back, a would you rather? I know. Mm. A would you rather? I'd rather still be long T-Mobile versus the others, but I think there's a better place to put your money. I don't care. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> I always wondered if you really cared. I mean, if you stopped to think if we cared about what, what would you rather? What would you rather? Isn't if that, isn't that what the show? I'm not asking This you. show <laughs> is one big would you rather, right? No, I, I, I'm just buy joking. it, sell it. I'm just but they to ran the graphics. Up. You know what, Melissa? They did. They had sometimes, sometimes your words nah. hurt, Melissa. <laughs> hey, look, would you rather? That's nice. <laughs> Karen, did you ever own AT&T? Because once upon a time it was... One of the most widely held stocks in the United States. Everybody owned it. It's like the modern, you know, it was like Meta or Apple. I think it's like a merger, arbitrage, something or other, but not for this. Just for the reason you said. The dividend, and you're saying, you know, multiple times over. The debt, I mean, there's nothing compelling. Could it bounce? Sure, but I don't need to watch. Yeah. It's interesting. Cher sang a song. Words are like weapons. They hurt sometimes. I'm just saying, they do. They hurt they wound, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. They wound. They wound yeah. sometimes. We'll they talk can. about it at a, a commercial break. We'll commercial I know you break. know. Oh. Yeah. I know. Uh, AT&T's <laughs> options volume surging today. Let's get to Mike Coe with the action. Mike, sometimes there are clues in the options market about dividend cuts. And at 8.2% with the sinking stock price, one has he- to wonder... Yeah, so this was actually the fifth busiest single stock today. Uh, It traded six times its average daily options volume. We did see calls outpacing puts by about two and a half to one. And the busiest options were the July 14 calls. Those are going to expire on Friday. We saw about 63 and a half thousand of those trading for about 12 cents. And we saw some other calls trading uh, as well. The August and November calls were also busy. Now, I think it's important to understand that I think what's going on here, because I spoke to some people who are unwinding positions today, fairly substantial positions. A lot of these buyers, I think, are just uh, unwinding stock and thinking that maybe there's a little bit of a bounce. Because if you take a look at the options that expire about a year out, we do see a dividend cut uh, implied in that. Maybe not a huge one, but, you know, and it's common for implied dividends to trade at a little bit of a discount. But uh, I think a lot of this is just a fear of missing out on a, on a dead cat bounce. But that's probably the rationale for the long bets that we were seeing. All right. Mike, thanks. Mike Coe for more options action. Tune into the full show. That's Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, the lap of luxury looking a little uncomfortable. The breakdown in luxury retailers. And if there's any hope in the handbag trade, next, back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. European luxury retailers got off to a strong start this year, but recent weakness could mean the stocks are heading to the clearance rack. Let's go off the charts with Chris. Chris, what are you seeing? What are you watching? Well, I think it's an important group for the psychology of this market. It was only a few months ago this whole 
group of names was viewed largely as untouchable. They were talked about in the same conversation as the U.S. Fang. So I pay special note that they've really stalled out here over the last two or three months, basically since April, whether it's LVMH, which tried to make a new high last week, got rejected um, at the highs, opened sharply lower uh, this morning, sliced right through the 50-day, or I think the real troubling chart is Richmond, uh, which is the watch business, um, 15 16% correction uh, in that name. That had been an absolute leader for the past couple of years. So there's some little little hints of weakness in a group that's largely been very good. Hermes would be another one tried to make a new high over the last several months, has not been able to. I think it's a reminder for all of us that all these names or groups that give the perception of being untouchable are in fact not untouchable. They're just names. And uh, I think this is a group that's stalling. I think it's an important read on luxury. I think it's an important read on consumer. And they're not acting that great. Yeah, and China is not helping at all. We hear the expected yeah. data out of China. Karen, you own some of these. I do. I own Karen and I own um, Louis Vuitton, which are both huge French conglomerates. Uh, the Richemont thing, I think it's interesting to note, though, very heavy in watches. Yeah. And there was a big, gigantic surge in watch prices, the availability of watches shrunk, and the desire for watches. So I think that pandemic frenzy is stalling. So that's part of Richemont's um, problems today, but clearly it's spilled over. They also talked, Richemont talked about the U.S. being a mm. little lighter. We know that China's been slow right. to come back on. I still like them. Um, I find them touchable. I'm hanging on to them. <laughs> and, 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 and then one of our names that we've been long, Capri, um, and that's Jimmy Choo and Versace, a lot more Michael Kors. But this one has not performed when the other luxury brands were performing. So when you see this one, this one probably gets hit least now. And maybe you see a tailwind in the stock price. I'm still long it. What do you think of the chart, Capri? It's not a good chart. Uh, I, I actually think you always Don't we go have a after. Commercial or anything. <laughs> I like to go after the weakest animals in the herd. This is the weakest oh. chart of of the Wounded bunch here. Wounded gazelle at the watering hole. <laughs> yeah. um, Nike. Thanks for coming tonight, Chris. You can You're head welcome. out before final train. <laughs> Nike could put in this camp as well, right? Weak luxury name. So it's an interesting dynamic that we're, we're told how strong consumer is. The luxury names don't act that great. I feel bad for that gazelle. <laughs> Retail Darwinism right before your eyes. <laughs> Ralph Lauren on the 1st of August, I think. You know, 126, Chris can speak to this. 134 has been resistance a bunch of times. But you know what should be true? If you're buying your... Prada bag or your Hermes bag or your yes. Jimmy Choo's. If you're yes. buying a bust out retail, what are you thinking? Go to Real Real. I mean, let's let's talk yeah. shop here. I mean, you can get some great. I'm just I'm just putting it out there. If you're looking for an anniversary gift or something, get on to Real Real. Buy that Chanel bag at half price. Just putting. I'm just saying. I'm not even a spokesperson, but it's true. Well, I mean, th that does you know beg the question: Is that an additional pressure on some of these luxury? If you can find items mm -hmm. so easily and in fairly good condition Sounds at like a, a would fraction you rather. of the price. <laughs> is that a concern? Is it a concern it's for them? another channel that they don't have any It is, of. although on the flip side, though, that it creates a sort of a floor for buyers who want to buy the new Chanel or whatever to know, wow, okay, I can get a lot of money back on this. And I am long real real, and it's been a disaster. And it's up 100%, which only takes it down now to like, you know, 80. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, think, I think Real Real is actually a positive for them. All right. Up next, final trick. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Chris Verone. Long FCX. The China data has been weak, but they can't seem to kill the stock. 
Steve Grasso. Grayscale Ethereum Trust was my final trade last week. Got rejected. Rally got rejected. I think it's going to bounce again. Yes, first Danny Trejo. Mm. How hilarious was that? And he was clearly in on the gym. I mean, brilliant. So, anyways, that was great, Julia. Um, my final trade, Morgan Stanley. We'll see tomorrow some green shoots in the capital markets, M&A business, and a great money management business. And maybe a successor named. Possibly to that look out for too. Inside Fast Money, you and Karen go home often together. Tonight, you should stop at that blockbuster on the west side and rent heat, heat yeah and, and you don't just don't <laughs> okay don't patronize me yeah. yeah i'm just saying yeah. great movie do you have a final trade of course i do gdx system all right always great to have chris here on set thanks for watching fast mad money starts right now all opinions expressed by the fast money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of cnbc nbc universal their parent company or affiliates and may have been previously disseminated by them on television radio internet or another medium you should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy but only as an expression of an opinion such opinions are based upon information the fast money participants consider reliable but neither cnbc nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer.